Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. So we're so very happy um, about um, honoring presenting this book, Wide Awake. Um, we know it's been um, in the pipe for a while, and we have uh, some, a terrific anthology of amazing poets. And to kick it, to kick it off is the editor, Suzanne Lummis. There we go. Carly, is that is this the right order now? Are we in the order that I'm going to I'm going to talk about the anthology for a little bit? Then I'm going to introduce Carly Archibald. All right, and I'm going to start with a question that Harry asked me right now. He gave me the inspiration for how to begin. He asked me, "Why is it called Wide Awake?" And I want to poll the audience just really quickly for a moment. Do you like the title for an anthology of 112 Los Angeles area poets from the long-time poets, some of the founding fathers and mothers of Los Angeles poetry, to some of the most gifted uh, newer, younger poets. How does that hit you, Wide Awake Poets of Los Angeles and Beyond? Do you like it? I love the title. She loves... I'm so glad. At least we got one. Anybody else? Some people are neutral. Some people... Good. Okay. We've got... We're up to... Good. All right. And I will not force a response out of each and every one of you. Oh, hi there. I know you. All right. And what it means to me is this, that so often Los Angeles is characterized as being a city of vague dreamers, of people with unrealistic hopes. It's been called uh, the Boulevard of Broken Dreams, a dreamland, La La Land, and for at least decades, the rest of the country had this perception of people who just sort of lounged around on the beach and went surfing, and everybody wears a bikini, and well, you know, it's um. So I, I looked at the work that was coming in and the work that I was selecting from, and I thought about how fiercely awake it was, how alert, how perceptive, how savvy, and how absolutely aware of the world. World, the, the physical world around us, and also the social political world, and also the world beyond and outside of LA, across the nation and around the world. And I thought, wide awake. The poets here are wide, are wide awake. They're not missing a thing. So that's the, the title. And um, I think I want to compliment Holly on something before I sit down in a moment. Um, Holly, I hope this doesn't get all the other 111 poets in the anthology mad at me. Uh, they might all be mad at me, and you'll be my only friend among the whole batch of them. But of all the poets, I had lovely comments and perceptive comments from many of the poets, but you were the one who seemed to most understand that I did the best I could to lay these poems and poets together in an interesting sort of dynamic way so that the poems seem to be speaking to each other. Sometimes they'd contradict each other. Sometimes there'd be an overlapping theme. Sometimes it would just be images that would just sort of pop up and then a couple poems later, the same image pop up in a completely different way. And sometimes I would want to completely reverse course after, say, a very melancholy stretch or a very slow, languorous stretch. I'd all of a sudden want a, just an explosion of 
joyful energy or exuberance and go, okay, let's just turn this corner. And and Holly sent me a really sensitive and perceptive email about that. And other poets have other good things. <laughs> they just didn't they didn't quite get to that aspect of it to the same degree. But who else is here? CC. Where is Cece? She's, you said good things too, Cece. Charlotte, where's Charlotte? She said good things too. You just didn't say that. Okay, I'm going to now wrap it up because they're about to play the music on me. The band is going to start. Carly Archibald. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Carly Archibek. I'm the assistant director of Beyond Baroque, and we're very happy that you've all come to this wide awake reading. It's so nice to see a full group. In fact, you know, we wear a lot of hats at Beyond Baroque, so I'm also the publicist, so I'm going to take a picture real quick. Everybody say hello. We love literature. Yay! Yep. There we go. Okay. So, um, there's 112... Who said fromage? Dave McIntyre, ladies and gentlemen. Just because he's an anarchist doesn't mean he doesn't have a sense of humor. So, <laughs> so we have 112 poets brought to us by Suzanne Levis. More than 112 poems. And what we've been doing is we've been trying to have a reading a month that's a wide awake reading because we can have an excellent reading every time. C.C. Perry is going to be at the NoHo Lit Crawl in October, October 20th. That's our next reading. Um, actually, that's not true. We have three more readings, two more readings this month. One at Beyond Baroque, which will be 100,000 Poets for Change. Has anybody ever heard of that? Yeah, it's all over town. There's a lot of different readings to choose from. Ours is the best, of course, because we have James Reagan, Charles Harper Webb, Laurel Ann Bogan, Doug Knott, and Robin Costa-Lewis reading. Those are our, our headliners at 6 o'clock, and then we have other poets. Please check it out online. So what I'm saying is we have a lot of poetry to get through, and I'm going to start. So um, S.A. Griffin, who's a longtime friend of mine, where are you? Are you over in the corner, S.A.? He is. No. <laughs> By the way, S.A. said good things, too. He did. S.A.'s wide asleep. <laughs> and you're going to get to hear those good things in just a moment. So Holly and Harry both sent me their bios. I know Essay. I know a lot of things about Essay, but I'm not exactly sure what he would want me to say about it. So I thought, well, I'll look in the Wide Awake Biography section. And right, <laughs> and what does it say? Essay Griffin live, lo lives, loves, and works in Los Angeles. So I'm going to go with that. And without further ado, I'm going to introduce the amazing Essay Griffin. Yeah, I really dislike bios quite a bit, so I'm glad that that's the bio you printed for me. Thank you very much. I really appreciate that. Um, am I Lou Gehrig? I thought I heard an echo. Um, first off, I wanted to say um, um, Liz, uh, thank you also to Liz Clamrod and to Henry J. Morrow for being a part of this as well. Um, these things are never perfect. They're pretty impossible, but it's amazing when they make it to the shelf. And it is. It's, uh, this is a tremendous amount of work. Tremendous amount of work by everyone involved. So anyway, enough of that. Proud to be a part of it. Proud to be here. Let's grow. I'm just going to read poems by people 
because mine's pretty short my contribution so I'm going to do that one some other time last probably but these are people that influenced me that I love that I care about that have been a part of everything whatever the hell you can put whatever you want on it but I'm reading their poems One Miracle by William Moore for Bob Flanagan Stunned by tequila from the night before I remember poking at embers as dawn puffed its mist into a clearing Bob sang and coughed sang and coughed even then I wondered how much longer he had Every time his body jerked, I winced. I loved his improvised, contaminated genius. Tonight he's in the hospital again, alone. And this poem is like a waitress who deserves a big tip, half the bill, for telling me it's time to stop drinking coffee and drive over and rescue him, perform the one miracle I'm allowed in his life, but I'm not, because Bob's not the one I'm supposed to save. You're too kind. Thank you. I love you. You're beautiful. Don't change. Wanda Coleman. Wanda, why aren't you dead? Wanda, when are you going to wear your hair down? Wanda, that whore's name. Wanda, why ain't you rich? Wanda, you know no man in his right mind want a ready-made family. Why don't you lose weight? Wanda, why are you so angry? How come your feet are so goddamn big? Can't you afford to move out of this hellhole? If I were you, were you, Wanda, what is it like being black? I hear you don't like black men. Tell me you're ACDC. Tell me you're a nympho. Tell me you're into chains. Wanda, I don't think you really mean that. You're joking, girl. You're crazy. Wanda, what makes you so angry? Wanda, I think you need this. Wanda, you have no humor. You, and you you too serious. Wanda, I didn't know I was hurting you. That was an accident. Wanda, I know what you're thinking. Wanda, I don't think they'll take that off of you. Wanda, why are you so angry? Wanda, why are you so angry? I'm sorry. I didn't remember that, 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 that was so important to you. Wanda, you're always on the attack. Wanda, 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 I wonder, why ain't you dead? Again, too kind. I'll give you an address for the money later. Henry J. Morrow, Three Generations of Loving Marilyn. I'm fuzzy on how I came to love her, but when Dad uttered, It's Marilyn, we swept into the living room to watch Some Like It Hot on the black and white TV. She reigned on the screen with her sexy sway as if her knees were tethered together by a fine leather braid. It was Dad's impulse to pause the family for everything, Marilyn, pointing to her gentleman prefer blondes poster on the side of the bus or holding up a Marilyn lampshade at Woolworth and proposing for the dining room. Yesterday, wearing white sunglasses and a Marilyn rhinestone t-shirt, my teenage daughter sauntered down the stairs out to the family barbecue. Pivoting in the sun, she watched two eagles fly towards the ocean. Then she raised her chilled wine, took a sip, and entered summer. Yeah. L.A. Bogan, Detective Supremo. (laughs) Boys, 
I dream the light of reason too. The reasonable woman is a hope chest, a locked cabinet. The reasonable woman is pleasant enough. The reasonable woman is the converse of sex. The reasonable woman is a durable good, a sound diagnosis. The reasonable woman is a subordinate clause. The reasonable woman is childproof, although Heidi is already up to her knee. The reasonable woman is a skillet, a war bond. The reasonable woman is a fugue heard on the intercom. The reasonable woman is a graph of stock options, the percentage of return. The reasonable woman is open to suggestion. The reasonable woman is a string bean, a cauliflower, a field of potatoes. The reasonable woman is a packet of Alka-Seltzer and the accounts payable file. The reasonable woman is considering bankruptcy. The reasonable woman is a stacked heel, a running shoe. The reasonable woman is a pair of pantyhose in the bathroom sink. The reasonable woman is fat-free. The reasonable woman is a shadow of herself. Why would the reasonable woman become unreasonable? <laughs> this cat is the, the true, the true, wonderful, beautiful, somber trumpet of Los Angeles. Michael C. Ford, Marie Windsor. Remembering her always as the quintessential brunette femme fatale, even in her crossover to 1960s television when she, still in series reruns, moves across the silver screen like 125 pounds of warm fog. She always essayed the kinds of women who were these troublemakers on The Untouchables or perpetrators on The Riflemen or murder victims on Perry Mason, a woman then who kept reinventing herself as a counterpoint of feminine infinities, even with intense considerations directed towards Bell Star, Lady Outlaw, equestrian buckskin barometer. She walks us through decrepit rooms reinforcing evil or in a bad place of a narrow margin where the sniper draws his envy bead. I admired her most when she essayed a rocket scientist from East St. Louis and convivially commiserating with cat women of the moon. And the sultry sound of her lush voice makes his velvet stretch across a field of gravel. Please. Gail Ronsky. I swear to God I'm Lou Gehrig. I swear to God. This, 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 this is the most wonderful day, 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 of my life. Life, 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 life. Please. Gail Ronsky. Yeah! That's all right, man. Let's play it. Beneath the Ganges where it is dark. There is no edge. No edge of pedal. No tin edge of star. Without edges, there is no vividness. This is what I enjoy most about being here. Edges. Pretend that one thing ends... But nothing does end. Not here. 
beneath the Ganges where it is dark. And this is one of the most beautiful poets, I think, alive in Los Angeles today. Brendan Constantine, Before the Flood. My father remembers nothing, or rather, he remembers where it used to be. See that building? When I was a kid, there was nothing there. And next door, where the school is, nothing. We walk through his hometown, down a street with an Indian name no Indian lives to translate. It means Dream River, he says, or rambling, confused river I used to know. Their parents, no one believes their parents were children. That is, you need more than their word. They have to do something, stifle laughter, cry into their hands, stand tiptoe. We all look younger on tiptoe. My father peers over a fence, another new building. This was all sand, he says, for Bethlehem, Bethlehem steel. His shoe is untied. He bends to lace it. I almost help. Later, I reach for his hand at a crosswalk. Let's go back, he says, to how it was. No, to the house. I need to lie down. We turn and the town surges under our feet, comes over us in a wooden tide. I get my arms under his, kick for both of us. He doesn't try, doesn't speak when his house goes by. That was for all the podcasters out there listening in. Thank you. For real. Linda Albertano. Beloved. Everyone, take this to heart. For you, Linda, beloved. Thou art incendiary. Thou sendest me up in sparks 100 times a day. Thou makest me hum like 1,000 buzzing phone lines yammering through dizzy nights. When thou smilest upon me, I'm money in the bank. When thou snarlest, I am as bad check bounced and cowering in thy, thy heart's darkest dumpster. Thou art the lion of La Cienega, the rose of Sherman Way. I love to lay eyes on thee. Thou ringest through me sudden and bright as fresh champagne. My switchboard overloadeth. Thy breath is as clean laundry folded behind my lips. Thy teeth art as white Lincolns parked in neat rows. I love to taste the texture of thy skin. Thine eyes art interstellar. Beloved, thou art incendiary. Thou sendest me up in sparks. And now a word from our sponsors. Thank you. For all you podcasters out there. <laughs> does that mean they're seeing us and hearing us? Or just hearing us? What does that mean? What? Oh, what? 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 All right. Oh, what? What? 
Oh, stop it. All right, this is, I'm closing with this piece. And again, I'm honored to be here. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Suzanne. This really is a great book. And it really is fucking a lot of work. It's a lot of work, and I know it is. Well, thank you, dear. Thank you. All right, and this is dedicated to everyone. Oh, you know, and really, when is this heat going to stop when President Comover is, is being sworn in and then the sky starts falling in pieces all around the, uh, the uh, fascist wall? <sighs> I choose not to believe in war, holy or not. If I were Christ, I would be a drink of water. If I were Buddha... I would gladly kill myself in the garden of your eyes forever. If I were Muhammad, Mecca would be the journey in your touch. If I were a Jew, the Holy Land would be the covenant of my blood singing Hosanna in your veins. If I were an atheist, I would call your every footfall God, leaving footprints in the moment. Thank you. I'm right here, Suzanne. It's okay. It's okay, okay, podcasters. We're all right here. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, and people listening from wherever, S.A. Griffin. Let's give him another round. God knows where. Um, He makes an amazing macaroni and cheese. And um, he just recently edited together a collection by Scott Wanberg called The Official Language of Yes from Percival Press, which is very, very... Do we have it? It's right there. It's gorgeous. Look at that book. It's huge. It's glossy. It has pictures. $25.00. Available at beyondbaroque.org. No, just kidding. Um, There's the book. It's beautiful. It's like $25. It's gorgeous. And I'm especially fond of it because our bookstore at Beyond Baroque is called the Scott Wanberg Bookstore and Poetry Lounge. So anyway, that's enough for me. Anyway, S.A., he does, does, does help so many people. So our next reader is just the sweetest person I know. You're so nice, Holly. (laughs) I really, I really do. I just adore you. Um, So Holly sent me a um, bio, which I'm going to read from, but she says I a lot. So when I say I, I mean Holly. I'm like speaking in a royal kind of I. Things I didn't know about Holly, she came, she spent her early years in Nebraska, then she moved to Michigan, she graduated from Albion College, is that how we say that, Albion? Albion College in uh, Michigan in the 1960s, then she worked secretarial jobs in high school teaching in the 1960s, I immediately flashed like Mod Squad or something, you know, Holly, the teacher, or maybe Room 222, I'm not sure, none of you know what I'm talking about, (laughs) so maybe S.A., and Spencer, oh, and Dave, okay, good, I feel better, three people, that validates me, right? Okay. Um, She got lots of awards. She got hired by um, the Department of Labor. Well, poets in the schools, but through a grant by from the Department of Labor. And then... Make poets employable. How'd that work out for you? Was... was, I just need to know, was that grant renewed? Because I dream of that grant. (laughs) 
it was an experiment. It failed. But anyway, it did get Holly in touch with more in touch with poetry. She started teaching. Um, she teaches at USC, which is awesome. I wish I could go to USC. And she's married to Harry Northup, which makes her extra awesome. So I probably didn't cover everything, but I'm. I covered the most important thing. She was awesome, Holly. And her poetry is dazzling. Please welcome Holly Prado. The reason I could say something about Suzanne's editing of Wide Awake is that I read the book from beginning to end. I didn't intend to do that. Usually with an anthology, it's organized alphabetically or thematically in some way. You can just read around in it. But I read the first few poems and I saw what she was up to. And I saw the thought that went into the juxtaposition of the poems. And I'm hoping that you will buy a copy of Wide Awake and read it from page one to the very end. It's worth it. It's really worth it. Thanks to Pacific Coast Poetry Series and Beyond Baroque for this anthology. And I'm going to read one of my poems from the anthology and then a few new poems. So this is from Wide Awake. Earning a living. Figs, a lot of them stacked in plastic containers at Trader Joe's and cheap. Why resist when for $2.99 all that squish, that strange purple black with pink at the stem, can be mine to bite? Not a vampire bite, not a rabid dog bite, but the healthy, loving bite into fruit which seems to actually enjoy its fate, being eaten, as we're all chomped on by whatever swallows us eventually. Figs, luscious, purple-black, sexual, pliable, nothing new can be said. We can only repeat, pliable, testicle, vaginal, the fig-eating scene in Women in Love, a movie which includes two men wrestling nude in front of a burning fireplace. I have wanted a fig tree ever since Sarkis, elderly Armenian neighbor, planted his tree. I saw how fast it grew, how abundant, confident, joyful figs hung on their huge leaved branches. The lesson of age is this. Often, more is denied than granted. So the guy at the nursery, someone I sort of know because he's been there for years, knowledgeable, sarcastic, only helpful if prodded, says, there are no dwarf fig trees I could plant in a pot. No, never. Nothing like that. Plant green beans instead. I only have pots. Many days, I only have the past, that carefully sharpened knife lodged in my shoulder so that it hurts to dig up soil, a friend who's the crunch of refusal against bone. I won't cook with her again, 
and will never myself have enough yard. Sarkis said, pick figs, go ahead, pick figs. Armenians are clannish, but not selfish. My people, although they planted this country with wheat and logic, didn't teach me figness. So, I pick up the abundant figs at Trader Joe's, then set them where they ripen on my narrow countertop. Any redemption of the heart needs the body. Those men wrestle not to kill, but to adore muscle as faith, a painful shoulder as ready earth. Come, figs, grow here. some little pieces of torn up paper here. Did someone write a poem he didn't like? They're just... (laughs) And these poems are from this summer. Such great need for reassurance. Summer reading shifts from plot toward essays about sin. Despair. The sin that's not forgiven matches our parched landscape, Southern California drought. Despair itself refuses to forgive whatever we have stolen, lusted after, eaten much too much of, envied, flattened with our angers. Nature slams herself against us, screaming, creative and destructive mother, mother of us all. This morning I looked through my box of necklaces and bracelets, beads and silver, lovely colors, thinking if I decorate myself for you, make visible my respect for beauty, what we've taken from your body, incised, and hammered into something I can clasp around my wrist, my throat. Do you watch this? Does it resonate with mercy, sanity, release from rage? The girl I saw today walked fast, dark hair prowling down her back, tight jeans and clean white T-shirt, a perfect you, great mother, purposeful, intense. Can you let us worship your fine style? Can you give us then wet sky, surrender, loosening, a generosity of rain? Creatrix of my elbow and of that rare star named La Superba, star as red as your ripe mouth, your raspberries and my lipstick, which I wear to be your daughter. Mother, please release us. We've run out of firemen to squelch the wildfires north of us, where even men who try are killed by you. Three firefighters trapped in their car, not able to escape the flames. This summer, there's no plot, no light reading, Nothing working out, no rain. And then the corpse flower blooms, fierce cone from which a nasty-smelling blossom rises so infrequently that thousands rush to smell 
your death, your rot. Even this we long for. Anything that's yours we love. Can't you believe in us? We are your great predicament. We are your grammar and the Mozart that I listened to, his string quartets. Surely these are yours, his youth and fertile mind. Our genius, harmony, and suffering. Mozart, gone to you, to burial, too soon, just as the men who helped you tried to contain your fire, your anger, your incessant vengefulness. What can we do for your despair, for ours, which matches yours, which does belong to you? We're made of you, ocean our beginning, flatworm our first brain, ape and syllables, and the heat this summer, rising every day as blame. The Gorgeous Field. July rain, unusual. Its thunder brings everybody out to stare into blue, gray, pinkish clouds, thinking that our prayers make sense. Rain, rain, please, please. Release us from our drought. Allie, our young neighbor, dashes from her apartment saying, I want to see some lightning, as if lightning's a great miracle, which I guess it is this year. So little weather drama here in Southern California. Such great need for reassurance, meaning rain, rain, rain. After I've been gone until mid-afternoon, the thunder starts again when I get home. That means Rose has entered heaven, Harry says. Our cat, beloved last cat of our house, died this week. When Harry mentions heaven, Rose's heaven, it's just like rain. Our prayers have heard themselves. I'll read one more poem um, in a very different vein. This is for Harry. Wear your body without shame. Dodgers versus Phillies, July 8th, 2015. I'm afraid I can't stand long enough to walk into the stadium. I hope the hefty, kind, intentioned woman cop will help. I never thought I'd use a word like kind for any LAPD officer. Maybe watchful would be better. Nobody wants a fan to fall and break her wrist or ankle. Nobody wants to set a bad example about family safety in the ballpark. Family. Ace pitcher Clayton Kershaw and his wife have had a baby recently. My beloved stepson, Harry's son, has taken his small daughter to see baseball in Wisconsin, where they live. So far away. Too far away. I don't envy athletes when they travel the whole summer long. I only want to see the granddaughter who whispers, Hi, 
into the phone. Probably can't remember what I look like from the one short visit she and Dylan made over a year ago. Win and loss. Loss and starting over every single game. What makes us love a sport? The way a pitcher can stay interested after years and years of throwing that white ball. Fastball, curve, slider, changeup. Changeup, slider, fastball, curve. And yet I never tire of language or of Dylan's phone calls, his reports on Oceana's progress, her attempts at conversation. Hi, meaning hello to the big life ahead of her. May she grow beautifully in every way. May Clayton Kershaw's kid be blessed with its own talents and vocabulary. When I arrive at the security checkpoint, may the kind police get me through the line into my seat right next to Harry, where I'll stare onto the gorgeous field, the diamond, symmetrical, well-tended, with its hilly background and the palm trees at their California best. The flag sways way up in the air waiting for another version of our anthem to be sung I hope the singer doesn't try to hit a high note on the proud word free (laughs) land of the free just let it go at that (laughs) let us lean back consider the beauty of a sport a family my body even limping and unsteady I'm here I have my ticket. We're in July with its long days. Harry says, we're getting old. We need all the light that we can get. Thank you. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, Holly Prado. You're so welcome. So um, this book is put out by Beyond Baroque Books under uh, under an imprint we have called the Pacific Coast Poetry Series, which was put together by Suzanne, Liz Camfield, and Henry Morrow when they were all on the board. And it, it's going to be publishing more books, and we're... Um, I don't know why I thought I'd mention that. No, um, we have a lot of other readings come up, coming up, and if you want to see people read their own poems, like Michael C. Ford's going to be at the Abbott Kinney Festival, things like that. I don't want to bore you with a long litany of who's going to be reading where. So if you go to the beyondbaroque.org site and you click on PCPS for Pacific Coast Poetry Series, there's a flyer there that's always updated with the readings that are coming up. So just check that out. Also, I'd like to point out that all of our readers have fabulous books, which are up here, so um, support independent bookstores. Woo! And now, I'm going to bring up... Um, I went boy, girl, boy, girl, boy, girl, so here's our next boy. <laughs> Harry Northup has made a living as an actor for 34 years, acting in 37 films. That's more than he is old. Two of those years were really hard. Um, 37 films, including Mean Streets, 
taxi driver. Um, he's been in, he was in the first six of Martin Scorsese's films, which is awesome. You can see him everywhere. Once you see him, you can't unsee him. Um, Over the Edge, Silence of the Lambs. Uh, Harry is a poet who also has ten books of poetry published, and they're all just awesome. Uh, the latest one is Where Bodies Again Recline. It's in here somewhere. There it is. Um, please welcome Harry Northup. Thank you, Carly, for that fine introduction and for inviting me to read here. Thank you, Suzanne, for including me in this marvelous anthology. It's an honor and a pleasure to read with Holly Prado, S.A. Griffin, Suzanne Lummis, people, poets I admire and respect. I will read my poem, Make a Poem, from Wide Awake, and then I'll read a few of my new pieces. Wide Awake came about... Uh, Diane Wachowski was going to read it uh, or teach it Idlewild she had been asked to replace somebody and she had to go into a class and just uh, tell people or suggest to people to write a poem on different things and she had never done that before so that put a seed in my mind and then about a week later I wrote this poem right here Make a Poem Make a Poem from Pavement Fragmented and Black Uneven broken. Make a poem from an experience, memory, grief. Make an email a poem. Make a poem from tweets. Write it at intervals over a day. Make a poem from death and hunger. Make a poem out of embracing a fear. Make a poem out of wanting to tell someone something. Make a poem out of fear, vulnerability, poverty of spirit. Make a poem from poems that you've read. Poems come from poems. Read the language school poets as well as the romantic poets. While you struggle with learning the many forms, learn the tradition of poetry, especially the epics. Make a poem from tennis, sweet potatoes, and ruin. Make a poem from beauty and disgrace. Make a poem from bowing down to a greater craftsman. Make a poem out of women and men and trees with jacaranda blossoms fallen on the sidewalk. Make a poem from hills and viaduct and sod houses and country roads and a two-story red brick schoolhouse. Out of pride and discounted emotions, make a poem at evening. I went to a little... uh, two-story red brick building out in the country and uh, two miles from where I lived. And in the fifth grade, we learned Emily Dickinson and Walt Whitman. And I remember when I was in the fifth grade, I it memorized, uh, oh, Captain, my captain stood up and <laughs> recited it to the class. I'm now going to read a series of hitchhiking pieces. I will begin with a short preface. When I was 11, our family lived in Manzanola, Colorado. Manzanola is eight miles from Rocky Ford, the watermelon capital of Colorado. One Saturday, I hitchhiked to Rocky Ford. I got a ride in the back of a pickup to Rocky Ford and a ride in a car on the way home, my first hitchhiking experience. After a year in Manzanola, we moved to Seward and Steppo, an army base where my dad worked. We lived in Ordville, a housing project off the base. The nearest town, Sydney, where I attended junior high and high school, was 12 miles away. Two miles down a black top road to Highway 30, the Lincoln Highway, 10 miles east to Sydney. From age 12 to 16, 
I hitchhiked back and forth to Sydney many times. Hitchhiking, 1958. In 1958, after six days at home, I cut my Christmas 14-day leave short. A girl I liked and whose photo I kept on the inside door of my locker was not home when I was scheduled to pick her up for a date. I went home and packed my Samsonite suitcase. The next day I took a bus from Sydney, Nebraska to Denver and hitched out of Denver to San Diego where I was stationed at Naval Training Center waiting to go to radio school. I wore my Navy blues. In those days it was easy to get a ride if you were a serviceman. Went south to Amarillo and then west. One couple who gave me a ride bought me a hot beef sandwich with mashed potatoes and gravy and a glass of milk. I couldn't get a ride out of Albuquerque, so I went to a nearby U.S. Air Force station, got a military plane to a base near Las Vegas, then one to San Diego. When I got to the barracks, it was deserted. All the mattresses were folded up on the racks. I was the only one there. Hitchhiking, 1962. I attended Nebraska State Teachers College at Kearney in the fall semester in 1961. A few weeks into the spring semester, I quit. After being an apprentice in summer stock, I went back to Kearney in the fall of 1962. Same thing happened again. I acted in some plays and quit after the semester ended. In early 1962, I was living with my parents at 701 Maple Street in Sydney. A friend and I went to Sterling, Colorado to work on a grain elevator that was being built. I went to work at 7 p.m., the pay was $1.49 an hour, and the temperature was near zero. After working four hours, 50 feet up, I quit. <laughs> I walked to the edge of town and tried hitchhiking back to Sydney, 42 miles away. Snow was falling, not much traffic. Finally, I left and walked to an all-night cafe. Two cops came in. I told them my plight, asked if I could sleep in the jail overnight. They took me to the jail, asked questions, fingerprinted me. I was led to a cell. The cop unlocked the door, and I went in. He locked the door. I lay down on the thin mattress, felt the springs underneath, took my coat and shoes off, covered myself with a brown blanket. I'll never forget the sound of the keys, the opening and closing, and locking the cell door. The next morning, a cop bought me, brought me eggs up, white toast, and coffee. I thanked the cops and walked out. It was about 8 a.m. when, once again, I stuck my thumb out. After not too long, on a cold Sunday morning, I got a ride to Sydney. Hitchhiking, 1963. In the spring of 1963, Ferdinand Hernandez drove his brother Art, Ike Ramos, and me in his pink and white El Dorado to Omaha, where Ferdinand and Art, both professional boxers who went pretty high in the ranks, fought out of. At the eastern edge of Omaha, Art got my suitcase out of the trunk and carried it to the roadside. From there, I hitchhiked to New York City to audition for summer stock. When I got to New York City, I put my suitcase in a locker at the Greyhound bus station at 34th and 8th or 50th and 8th. The first day there, I bought backstage and looked for auditions. One audition I got was with Guy Palmerton in his 52nd Street apartment west of Broadway. He was a producer of the summer stock company, Lake Wayland Playhouse, Fitchburg, Mass. 
I slept sitting up in the bus station and used the men's room to wash up and shave. After the fourth day of looking for acting work and getting none, I hitchhiked back to Sydney, Nebraska. In early June, our family had just eaten Sunday dinner and I was getting dressed in my Bunker Hill uniform to go play a baseball game in Potter. I was the regular third baseman. The phone rang. It was Guy Palmerton. He wanted me to come to Lake Wayland Playhouse in a few days and be an apprentice. My mother paid for a train ticket, and I went to Fitchburg, Mass. At season end, I got my equity card. Hitchhiking 1965. In 1965, Christopher Jones, who was playing Jesse in The Legend of Jesse James, told me on the phone to fly out of New York City and meet the producer David Weisbart for a possible screen test for Frank James. My brother Jim paid for a one-way plane ticket. On a Saturday, I arrived in L.A. I stayed with our cousins Norm and Florence Knudsen in West Covina. On Tuesday, I took three buses to get to 20th Century Fox, where I met and talked with Chris and David Weisbart. Then I went back to West Covina. Two days later, I was informed that I didn't get the part. Alan Case was signed to play Frank James. On Friday afternoon, I stood near an on-ramp to the 10 freeway heading east. My sign said, New York University. I was clean-shaven and wore a suit and white shirt. I had $4 in my pocket. It took me four days and four nights to get back to Manhattan. When I met you is a title, and then at the end it's when I met you, and it's not in quotes because I use a few quotes around some uh, sentences, lines from uh, some songs, as you'll see. When I met you, this came about because I was thinking about what do I do, what did I used to do when I'm standing there waiting for a ride. When I met you, oh, goodbye, cruel world, I'm off to join the circus. Gonna be a broken-hearted clown. I sang to myself as I stood hitchhiking west on Highway 30 outside of Kearney, Nebraska. Other times it would be, they call me the wanderer, yeah, the wanderer, I roam around, around. And go back to the first one, changing words then, goodbye, old paint, I'm a-leaving Cheyenne. And repeat, or now I'm walking, yes, indeed, now I'm talking, but that's domino. Alone on a highway going east-west or zigzag to New York City, Los Angeles, Sydney, Nebraska singing, As I walked out on the streets of Laredo, As I walked out in Laredo one day, I spied a poor cowboy. What you gonna do when the well runs dry? You gonna run away and hide? Fat sang. One smart, beautiful blonde said, I remember you saying Blueberry Hill. I found my thrill on Blueberry Hill when I met you. And this is a last prose piece. Hitchhiking last time, 1972. Martin Scorsese cast me as Deputy Sheriff Harvey Hall in Boxcar Bertha, which was going to be shot in Camden, Arkansas. When I talked to Roger Corman, he wanted to hire a local actor for the role in Camden. I told him, get me there and I'll get home on my own. He agreed to that. The film company paid my airfare one way, put me up in a motel, gave me SAG minimum and per diem. After the shooting, which went well, I took a bus from Camden to Dallas. From there I hitchhiked to L.A. 
I was 31, and that was the last time I hitchhiked. A few rides got me to West Texas where I saw the most beautiful sunset. About 9 p.m., I got tired of standing off a highway with little traffic. West Texas isn't L.A. or the West Coast where there's traffic all the time. I checked into a nearby motel. In the morning after breakfast, I went down to the road headed west. The sign I held said, UCLA, hoping people would think I was a college student. A station wagon driven by a young woman stopped. She said she was going to San Bernardino. Hop in. I put my suitcase and sign in the back and got in. It was almost a fantasy come true. We talked. She was nice. At night, we checked into separate rooms in a motel. When we got to San Bernardino, I got out on a freeway exchange and walked beside the highway going to Santa Monica, where I lived with Reed and Dylan. The side of the road was hilly and rocky with brush. Finally, I got on, I got an on-ramp to the 10 freeway. A guy stopped for me and took me to downtown L.A. From there, I took the Wilshire bus to Santa Monica. Thank you. Thank you, Harry. That was Harry Northup. Fabulous. All right, our final reader this afternoon. And again, I want to thank you guys so much for coming out. This is such a great crowd. Thank you for supporting poetry, bookstores, books, the whole kit and caboodle. Um, Our last reader is the editor of the collection, and she too is going to share uh, poems that are not her own by poets that you haven't heard yet. Suzanne Lummis. All right, so a couple of people have mentioned... uh, Henry Morrow and Liz Camphiert. Uh, without Henry Morrow, uh, who put in his own money to start the Pacific Coast Poetry Series, there would be no anthology. And without my assistant editor, Liz Camphiert, she's not here, is she, Liz? No? Okay, she's here in spirit. Without her, there would be an anthology, but it would be screwed up because she really helped me She's so much. There's no, hardly any typos, almost none. Oh, because of her. Right, because of Liz Campier, it is not an all messed up, screwed up anthology. I am going to read one, just one of mine, and not from the anthology, and then I'm going to plunge into the anthology. Um, I will be reading from, by the way, and I don't let me forget to say this, please, everybody, if you have enough money to pay your rent, hi. If you have enough money to pay your Time Warner or Verizon bill and put food on the table, if you've got any money left over, please, please buy a book here today. Even if for some reason like you hate Wide Awake and you're sitting here going, I hate Wide Awake, or you hate poetry, whatever, find some, look at all the poetry. You can learn, look, there's Italian for dummies over there. There's a book called The English Opium Eater. That's a good one, I'm sure. Just walk out of here with a book and support your independent bookstores, all right? And right. All right. 
So this is, I'm going to be, read the opening poem to my collection, which came out last fall, and it won something called the Blue Lynx Award. Has anybody heard of the Blue Lynx Award? I hadn't either, but I, I will regardless, I won it anyway. All right, and the, I used to live in a kind of a tenement on the fourth floor. A lot was going on at night all over the building. It was a very, uh, it was a building, I can't tell you the whole story, but I, I just had to sleep dressed because I often had to run out in the middle of the night to deal with whatever was going on and in this case there was a big car crash out in the streets and I ran down four flights of stairs it's called Hot Pursuit it wasn't the grind of brakes cry of metals unforgiving each other no it was that so delirious and slow plowing headlong into and past traffic light, street lamp, then the disruption of parked truck that got me out of bed and down four flights of stairs onto the street. The rubble of smashed glass makes the sidewalk shine. The traffic lights lying knocked flat. One cop car stopped behind the spot. The others in pursuit. The kid hit the ground and took off by foot. Everyone's drained out of the donut shop, the Armenian dance hall, owl drugs homeboys in t-shirts and blue tattoos in LA it gets like this at night hot we stare at the parked truck that got punched from the back then at the criminal car under the flung hood the motor stamps and steams look at that bumper we yell that crested wheel and the glove compartment sprung so the deeds of legal ownership drift out the driver's side the driver's doors wide. It's like so ajar. It's like Chamberlain's sculptures from crushed cars. Here is the art of disaster. The art of the split second fatal bad choice. I know how our mistakes change the shape of things, but to look at the twists and turns the kid put in this Ford coupe, you'd think what he wanted really was to make a crazy staircase and climb up. I'm going to plunge into here. Now, I made a promise. I made a promise. I'm going to try to keep at least most of my promise. I might not be able... Marilyn, you snuck in on me. Um, I I made a sort of a rash promise that I would read the poem, a poem by everybody who was here who has a poem in the anthology. I might not be able to get to everybody, but I'm going to try to get to, if I don't get to you this time, Marilyn, I might owe you one. Uh, I do want to read... Charlotte Innes's poem. Where's Charlotte? Okay, Charlotte has. Um, she finishes up a little sweet. There's a little, a, a little. Yeah, you call a suite of poems of love poems, and it begins. Where's essay? Essay. Yeah, you read Linda Albertano's gorgeous poem. Gorgeous, beauty, a thing of beauty. And this little section of love poems. And you're you're in that same little section of love poems too. And it closes with this of a woman looking back on a torrid. I'm pretty sure it was torrid. <laughs> 
trying to figure out was it real was it real right it's a uh, it's a rondo it's so it, it's rhyme it rhymes subtly if you see it on the page you'll see how there's very subtle rhymes woven through and it's the rhyme is in a certain pattern it starts with a, a, and a rondo starts with five a five line stanza then a four line stanza then a six line stanza so she nails it just perfectly all right it's called the x did you love him my friend asked as I mowed the lawn. I stopped and surveyed the shredded grass for a moment torn between what I believed was true and what I thought might be. I wasn't sure. Well, I think I bought a story. I mean, we did. God, it seemed... Uh, go on. He turned the radio off. Peace. All summer long, we'd listen to unrelenting Olympic cheer from dawn to dusk. While all my thoughts had wrestled down the fraught. Did you love him? Question. Crushing. Yes. Spitting no that it was wrong to want to call. Though maybe just to help us both move on. Of course, my friend began to carve the lamb. He'll sort it out. Let's eat. But the lawn can wait. Look, I've brought your favorite wine. And the full moon rising seemed to yawn. Did you love him? Okay. All right. Sometimes been there. Um, Cece, do you want to call out, call out your, your number? Do you have your number? You've forgotten your number? Your, your page 24? 124. Okay, I'm going to go to 124. All right, I'm going to read William Archilla, too, and Melissa Rojas. 124. I think that I will do... Here it is. I found it. Okay. I'm going to do Trouble Down the Road. Who here likes film noir? Film noir. Double indemnity. Touch of evil. Uh, pick up on South Street. Gun crazy. Um, oh, yeah. Now we're talking. Okay. So this, think of this as the beginning of a noir story. Nobody gets shot yet, but... Something's going to happen here. This is the setup. This is how it begins. And Cece wrote this in my noir class. My it's a it's called a poetry goes to the movies. Film noir, poetry noir. Okay, trouble down the road. At the flat top grill, he was all business. Flung raw eggs dead center into the corned beef hash like a strapping southpaw. In the alley, with me, he was all ideas. Said he'd be leaving soon. Had a shot back east, a tryout for the big leagues. Said his sister would loan him a Buick convertible and he'd fill it with malt beer and tuna. All he needed was a woman to hold his cat while he drove. I like animals, I told him. Then I dropped my cigarette into the dusty clay, ground it out slow, felt the road under my foot. Okay. That's where it begins. All right. Nothing good is going to come out of this. All right.
By the way, who else is, uh, let's see, so Marilyn, here, you're here from the anthology. Anybody else here from the anthology? Okay, so Marilyn, I owe you one, all right? Now, I'm going to read something very serious. It's very dark. It's troubling and it's dark. Um, it's some, it's, it, there's two, I'm proud of all the poems in here and so proud of all the poets and so, I just love these poets. But there's one poet whose situation is a little bit different. My student, Melissa Rojas, uh, studied with me for about two classes, two or three classes, then went to her, the Philippines, the country of her ancestors, to do humanitarian work and to work among the poor. And during that time, she was kidnapped by government thug forces who didn't realize they'd had an American or they would not have thrown her in the back of the truck. Uh, she speaks fluent Tagalog. They thought they had a native person who they could just take. And very fortunately, the reason she lived, well, she was tortured for six days, first of all. Tortured, imagine that. Tortured for six days. and But the reason she lived is because about a month before, she listened to a, a lesson or a lecture that she thought she would never need to use. And it kind of almost went in one ear and out the other, but she sort of half heard it. And it was this. If you're ever kidnapped, this is what you're supposed to do. Don't scream. Don't just say help. If you do this, you say, in her case, my name is Melissa Rojas. My name is Melissa Rojas. My name is Melissa Rojas. As loud as you can. Because then they know who's been taken. Otherwise, they don't know who's been taken. So she she did that, and people heard, and they knew. So... I have to get my voice back. Then she took when she came, when she was finally recovered, she uh, she spent a long time just uh, getting healing again, basically. And then she took another class from me, and she it restored her to her poetry. And she said poetry saved her life. Um, and there's two poems in here. There are very few poems about torture by somebody who's actually been there, because. It's like as if something dramatic happened to me and I was asked to paint about it. There's been people who've written, who've been tortured, they've been written poems, but they're not poets. So I've seen an anthology of poems, poets who've been through that, but they rhyme and they, they don't capture it. They're, they're just not poets. Just the way if I tried to make a painting out of something that happened to me, I'm not a painter, so it wouldn't really express it. But here's poetry that really expresses it. And then I'm going to read the poem that I found to follow this um, geography lesson, it's called. I can show you the maps on my body, bruises the torturers left, those scattered brown things in a mouth thick with layers of tongue, sticky keys and a hung note, each one a whole country in itself, dark and beloved with eight blood, black poor, red poor, black dark scabs on my knees crack into a thick brown soup my nipple a callous flower oh these shiny things of war sour breath of a dark animal my brittle bones my brittle beast do not weep okay there's that and then there's the one that I found that yeah there's the one I found that's the only poem 
that could possibly follow it. Um, and it's Jackson Wheeler. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Ars Poetica, which in the Latin means the art of poetry and is usually... a it sneaks in the poet's belief about what he or she believes poetry really is, their own sense of what poetry is. Ars Poetica. Because I was sung to as a child, because my father shot himself when I was ten, because my mother took in ironing and worked as a janitor, because my mother would say she could turn on the radio and I would lie in the crib and listen quiet as a mouse, because there was singing on the radio, Kitty Wells, the Leuven brothers, the Stanley brothers, the Carter family, the Stoneman family, and when I was older, Saturday afternoons with my father's mother, her dark Indian eyes glittering in the twilight of the room, wrestling from Chattanooga, Tennessee, announced by Harry Thornton. Because I watched my uncle slaughter hogs, because I watched my mother kill a chicken for dumplings, because I watched the rescue squad drag the Nantahata Lake for drowned vacationers up from Florida, because Southern Appalachia was imagined by someone else, I just lived there and the mountains until I read about it in a book other than King James Bible, which is all true, my mother said, every jot and St. Matthew tittle of it, because God is a burning bush, a pillar of fire, a night wrestler, a swath of blood, a small still voice, a whisper in the virgin's ear, because my family is full of alcoholics, wife beaters, spendthrifts, and big-hearted people who give the shirts off their backs because their stories lie buried in the graveyards, because their stories have been forgotten, because their stories have been misremembered, because my father's people said they were from Ireland down Wexford way, because my father's father baptized people, because my father's mother bore a child out of wedlock and was part Indian because my mother's father got his leg crushed at the quarry because my mother's mother died of brain cancer in her 50s my friends think I talk too much don't talk enough that I'm too queer for company that I'm not queer enough my mother's people were Scots and Welsh three cheers for the beard of Brody Mar three cheers for the blood on the the shields of the Keiths from Wick. Three cheers for immigration, the waves of it and the desperation behind it. Let's hear it for King's Mountain and the Scots revenge for Culloden. Three cheers for extended family, the nameless cousins, all the petty griefs and regrets, the novels never written, the movies never made, the solace of the bottle, the solace of sex, the solace of loneliness, of which there is plenty. All hail the poetic arts and the art of poetry and the knowledge at the heart of it all. Words bear witness. I, I think... 
I, I think I'll let you all read William Archilla's beautiful poem, which closes the book um, and is also about immigrants and so on. But it's really pretty hard to follow Jackson's poem. After that, you just got to sit down. I mean, uh, yeah. Uh, thank you, Skylight Books, th- for hosting us here today. This is really, I, this was a beautiful place. A beautiful venue for a a lovely reading. And thank you, amazing poets. And thank you, you, amazing, beautiful audience. I hope I get to meet all of you now. (laughs) Thank you, Susanna. Extra round of applause for the editor.